The Bible reading this morning is Psalm 115, and if you have a black church Bible, it's on page 954, and it will also be on the screen. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to the human race. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jono. And if you can keep your Bibles open, uh, stick up your hand and wave it frantically. If you haven't got one, you'll need one, um, and you'll see an outline of where we're going. Okay, there's... There's a frantic waver down there. Someone run to her aid. That's good. Richard, Richard is... Okay, there's another few more. That's good. Excellent, because we believe in Scripture alone, don't we? Got to have the Bible open. Good. Okay, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd... You'd speak to us with your wisdom as we confront this sort of big question about what, life, what is life about, and you'd, you'd give us the answer, and with the wisdom that comes from knowing the answer, you'd help our lives to be transformed so that we would live pleasing lives before you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, keep your hand going if you need a Bible. Okay, thank you. All right, most of us have found ourselves from time to time asking ourselves, what is the point? What's the point? What's the point of life? Have you ever asked yourself that? Usually, when you're having a bad day, you're stuck in traffic, what's the point? Stuck in a job you don't like, what's the point? Stuck in unemployment, what's the point? Stuck with an illness, just stuck. What's the point? What's the point in life? Have you asked that? The reformers asked it, Luther, Calvin, the Puritans asked it, not because they were having a kind of 21st century existential crisis, but because they were blown away at the sheer magnificence of God's grace. Because when Luther rediscovered in the Scriptures the good news of the Gospel of Christ, salvation for sinners was not found in priests or the Pope, but in what God has done for us in Christ alone. And that's received through faith alone, not through the purchase of indulgences, entirely by God's grace alone, rather than anything we've contributed ourselves, and that we're ruled by Scripture alone. This was more than just good news. This was life-changing as well as being life-saving. In Jesus Christ, God had dropped an atom bomb of grace on the world. And the shockwaves of grace blew apart medieval religion, changed people deeply, penetrated every area of life. 
impacted by God's grace, how could they not ask the question, what then must be the purpose of life? They were trying to work out how should we respond. Given the magnificence of what God has done for us, what does waking life now look like? What does it mean for us? When my daughter Sally was very little, three or four, I remember telling her about heaven, about God's grace, the best was yet to come. And she kind of looked at me with this excited smile and said, shouldn't we just kill ourselves now and go straight to heaven? Because if what God has in store for us is so good, you see, what's the point of living now? It's a sensible question in a way. I did think it was timely to respond in a parental wisdom and all that sort of stuff. But it's the same question. If, if what God has in store for us is so good, what is the point of living now? The Reformers went to Scripture for the answer, to two Scriptures, Romans 11, verse 36, and the first verse of Psalm 115. Romans 11:36 is the final line in a whole eruption of praise that Paul gives after unpacking God's sovereignty in salvation, from predestining people to sending Christ to justifying the elect by faith alone to wrestling with questions about God's sovereign mercy and free will, and then his ultimate plan to turn the Jews to him through his grace to the Gentiles. And then after realizing that all of this comes from God's grace and mercy, he says, oh, the depth of, of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who, who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? You see, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All things come from him. All things. Life, salvation, our fellowship together, everything in our life that is good. From him it comes everything. And it all comes to us through Him. Yes, we receive these things by faith alone, but it's He who gives us that faith. Salvation is by grace alone, not by anything we contribute. Everything, even our faith, comes to us through Him. And all of this to Him, everything God gives us, everything we receive ultimately exists to rebound back to Him for His glory. Why do we exist? For the glory of God alone. This fifth Reformation slogan is the logical and inescapable conclusion from the first four. Given that all of us, all that comes to us from Him and through Him and exists to go to Him, all things, that includes us. We live for the glory of God. To God be the glory. So says Romans 11.36, the first verse the Reformers went to. The second verse is in Psalm 115, verse 1, which made explicit what was only implicit in Romans 11, that God alone should get the glory. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. There's a determination for God alone to get the glory. 
the negative is emphatic, not to us. The writer is determined that God alone gets the glory. And that makes us wonder, what's made this writer so determined for God alone to receive the glory? Was there a military victory which was totally against the odds? Many have thought so in reflecting on this psalm. So Henry V, the King of England, thought this. In 1415, his smaller English army soundly defeated the French army in the Battle of Agincourt, lost 1,600 men to the French losses of 10,000, mainly because of the invention of the English longbow. Shakespeare, when he wrote the play Henry V, he put the English losses at only 25 in his adaption. Nevertheless, in real life, victory was so unexpected and it was by such a huge margin that on realising that he'd won, Henry V dropped down on his knees in the mud and gave glory to God. He cited Psalm 115 verse 1 because he thought that that verse was speaking about a military victory. Or was he right? You read verse 2, and foreign nations are making a mockery of Israel's faith. You read verses 9 to 11, and God's people are called three times to trust in Him as their help and their shield, implying there is a serious need for God to be their help and their shield. And given the mockery in verse 2, it's reasonable to think that perhaps foreign armies are now close enough to be heard, perhaps even at the city walls. Taken that way, verse 1 is a prayer for God to be glorified in rescuing and saving His people from attack. And the clear assumption is that they know that they are weak and that they're unable to save themselves. So imagine being an Israelite in Jerusalem and seeing wave after wave of kind of foreign soldiers before your walls. This happens in Hezekiah's time. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers at the city walls. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Now, if this was a prayer, was it prayed weakly or confidently? You know, in fear or in assurance? I think it was prayed confidently because in verses 2 to 8, we see the writer himself exposing this stupid thinking behind the nations, behind the nations who mock faith in God. Verse 2, why do the nations say, where is their God? Well, the nations say that as obvious mockery because their own gods could be seen. Visit their temples, you see the statues of their gods. Visit Israel's temple, there's a glaring omission, there is no statue, no God. An invisible God, what a laugh! And isn't that exactly what people think today? Think of the people at work or uni who know you're a Christian and how they dismiss your faith as silly, your faith in an invisible God. Maybe they even laugh out loud at you, at your misguided faith in your make-believe God, your fairy tale God. You know, they laugh at you going to church, giving your time and your money, your money to what? to someone who isn't real. Whereas what they live for, what they give their time and money to are very visible, bricks and mortar, investment properties, holidays to exotic locations, the perfect body, children who are happy and successful. Good things, but twisted to become the gods of our age. 
Now, that makes the question of why do the nations say, where is their God, seem redundant, because why wouldn't others say, where is their God, if God cannot be seen and never shows himself? But to say that is to miss a fundamental point which the writer now makes blindingly clear. And that is that the God who is truly God and above his creation will be invisible. And that rather than this disqualifying himself from being God, this is exactly what establishes him as God. Verse 3, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. That's what makes him God, his independence from us. That's what his name means, Yahweh. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I'm not dependent on any aspect of the creation. I exist independent from it. I am God. If you're not independent, then he'd be dependent, like those so-called gods in verse 4, made by the hands of men. They have mouths, they can't speak, eyes, they can't hear, can't see, ears, can't hear, noses, can't even smell, hands, can't feel, feet, can't walk, can't even utter a sound with their throats. So those that think their God must be seen to be real, and which are crafted by them, miss seeing the main point that gods which are made are no gods at all. In fact, they're less alive even than the people that worship them because even the dead are more godlike than crafted gods because at least the dead were once alive whereas these gods that have been made have never actually been alive at all. For God to be God, he must be above what we can see and touch and smell. And the tragedy of not realising this is not just that people will give themselves to worship something less than themselves, but that in worshipping it, they become like it. Verse 8, powerless, lifeless, and in the end, dead. So those people who sneer and say, where's your God? They're really only revealing their own foolishness and blindness to God, the God who is unseen. People who know God know that this is true. And yet, nevertheless, we are still open to real attack by real people with real capacity to harm and to kill. What's to be done? Fight? No, because we have the Lord. The Lord who can't be seen, but the Lord who is God. What we must do is exercise faith alone, to trust, to trust in the Lord. Verse 9, O house of Israel, that's everyone, trust in the Lord. House of Aaron, priests, spiritual leaders, Trust in the Lord. You who fear Him, that means everyone who says you trust in the Lord, <laughs> trust in the Lord. Consciously, trust in the Lord to be your help and your shield. Three times those words are mentioned because for the people of God, He is their help and shield. For the spiritual leaders, He's their help and shield. For those who fear the Lord, He is their help and their shield. The Lord is precisely what we need to be need him to be for us when our lives are in danger. What do you need when your life is in danger? You need a shield, don't you? You need protection from immediate harm. And then you need someone to lift you out of that situation. You need help. You need a deliverer. You need salvation. Protection, shield, salvation, deliverer. When this psalm was written, the kingdom of God was a real place with real borders, with real enemies, with real armies fighting real arrows. We are at a different stage in salvation history. The kingdom of God is no longer a country, a physical place with 
nation-state enemies. But that doesn't mean that the kingdom is not real. It is. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. But he came to proclaim the kingdom. The kingdom of God is near. It's at hand. And then he died on the cross to open it up. And he calls us all to respond and to enter it. A kingdom is real. But neither should we think that our enemies aren't real. They are. Luther knew it. Luther knew that his soul was in danger because against him stood real enemies. There was the law, which exposes his sin. There was his guilt, whose stain he could not remove. And then there was the wrath to come, the promised judgment. Luther knew it. What was needed? Faith alone. Not in the Pope, not in the church, but in God. House of Israel, trust in the Lord. In rediscovering the gospel, he knew that only Christ could be his shield for protection. Only Christ could deliver him from hell. And that's why faith alone in Christ alone means in the end glory for God alone. Not for Luther, not for me, not for you, not the Pope, not anyone else. Because no one else does for us what only Christ can do. So, glory to God alone. Back in verse 1, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your chesed and your emet, love and faithfulness. Those two words most often used in the Old Testament to describe the character of God, chesed, God's loving kindness, his overflowing generosity, and his emet, his dependability, his trustworthiness. Two words describing the character of God, which in the New Testament are paralleled by the words grace and truth. Two characteristics which speak to us of Jesus. John in his gospel, chapter 1 verse 14, said, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The God who was invisible became visible. That this God, the Lord, is uniquely glorified in Jesus. We've seen his glory the glory of the one and only, and that he came from the Father, full of chesed and emet, full of grace and truth. Salvation in Christ alone, he said, through faith alone, by God's grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And so Psalm 115 tells us, there is immense blessing for those who trust in Christ. Verses 11 and 12 express certainty. The Lord remembers us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord. And he'll bless without distinction, small and great alike, it says. And the psalm could end there with this determination that God be glorified, with this call to trust in Christ, with this confident expectation of blessing and salvation. It could end there, but it doesn't. And I love that it goes further. Verses 14 and 15 look beyond that moment of rescue to what comes after. Of the increase of you and your children. Now, back then, that's what it meant to be, for God's people to be actively involved in God's kingdom growing, because it came to Abraham and his descendants. So, if your children grow and increase and you're blessed in that way, the kingdom grows and increases and bless, is blessed, and you're involved in it. Uh, 
that's not really <laughs> the, our point of application in our period of, trans, of salvation history. If we were to translate this into our point in time, the hope for us would be also to be actively involved in God's expanding kingdom, uh, doing the work we do at church, uh, the work you do as a witness wherever you are during the week, in work, at school, at university, uh, inviting your friends to carols, for example. Uh, this is invo being involved in the work of God's kingdom expanding. I mentioned before my daughter Sally's question, why not go straight to heaven, you know, if we're saved? You know, why doesn't God, at the moment of conversion, just zap us up, beam us up, Scotty? Um, the answer is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, because we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. That's why we're saved by faith. He's got work for us to do. And Jesus called us to be actively involved in his mission of making disciples. That's what it means to be blessed by the maker of heavens and earth. We work on earth to impact earth and heaven. What a blessing. And so now we get to the application. We live on earth with the express purpose of bringing praise and glory to God in all that we do. Verse 16, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth... He has given to us. Because now, whilst we're alive, this is our domain. He has put us here to live for His praise. Because verse 17, it's not the dead who praise the Lord, those who goes down, down to silence. It's we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. The point is not to say there is no afterlife. It's saying that it's only those who are alive now, it's only we, the living, who can bring praise to the Lord on earth because once we've died, we're no longer here. You have to be alive to be able to bring praise to God on earth. And we have a limited lifespan to live on earth for God's glory alone. The Westminster Confession of Faith asks this question, what's the chief end of man? In other words, given the magnitude of God's grace to us, saving us in Christ alone through faith alone, what's the purpose of our existence? Answer? to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. To have as our life motto, Lord, we live for Your glory. In everything we do, in every aspect of our lives, we seek Your glory. That's our goal. That's our aim. That's the point of living. In our work, in our relationships, our performance, in our thinking, in our ingenuity, we use what has come to us from You and through You for You. For the sake of your name, from Psalm 115, the reformers saw this must impact every area of our life. First and foremost, in our theology, our understanding of salvation must safeguard God's glory. Which means, if we attribute our salvation to anyone else but Christ alone, if we look to the Pope or to saints or to Mary or the prayers of a priest to save us, what are we doing? We are robbing God of His glory. Not to us, not to us, but to you be the glory. If we thought salvation was not received by faith alone, that we contributed it to it in some way, then God's glory is at stake because we're taking glory for ourselves. If we thought our faith came from within and not as a gift from God, that is, that we're not saved by God's grace alone, we would wrongly boast in ourselves and not in God. But 
Romans 11, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. So our theology of salvation has to be impacted. Second, if we are to bring glory to God alone, church worship had to be reformed. Back then, remember, you, you were Roman Catholic, you went to the Roman Catholic Mass, which was in Latin, right? You couldn't understand a word. At the centre was the Mass, where it was believed that the bread and wine would literally, at a moment in the service, become Jesus' body and blood, so that if you dropped them, you would drop Jesus. And where, when you consumed the bread, you re-sacrificed Jesus again, the thought being that on the cross... Jesus didn't pay for all your sins, and so that therefore by re-sacrificing himself, re-sacrificing Jesus, when you took and ate um, the bread during the Mass, your sins were somehow being paid for at that very moment by re-sacrificing Jesus. But Scripture, of course, says that Christ died for sins once for all, right? Which makes the Lord's Supper not a re-sacrifice, but a fellowship and a remembrance meal which celebrates that we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone. The Reformers believed in Scripture alone. Well, that meant that church services stopped being in a language people couldn't understand. They were in the local tongue, first of all in German and then as it was translated. Scriptures were read in people's language. This was revolutionary. It hadn't happened before. And the services, of course, were soaked in Scripture. This was the standout feature of the Anglican prayer book. Um, the whole country, because the whole country had to come to church, were reciting Scriptures to each other every week, every time they came to church. That meant that within a generation, much of the country had become Christian because it seeps in. God's Word changes you. It redeems you. And that's why, of course, in our services, the standard diet is not to do what we're doing now, which is kind of a topical series, although we're in the Psalms, um, and we've been in the Psalms the whole series. The standard feature in our church is to preach through books of the Bible. This is why during our singing, we try and sing scriptural truths which proclaim the gospel in song. So that's scripture alone. Now, what about Christ alone? Well, believing Christ alone means that we come to God through Christ as our mediator, the high priest, not the Pope, not a service leader, not a priest, but Christ. And because Christ is our one high priest, then therefore the priest in church is not the middleman mediator. The priest in church is the leader of the congregation in leading the priesthood of all believers in coming to God through Christ. So that means that a service leader would never say, let me pray for you. That's Catholic, like they're a mediator. The service leader would say, let's pray together. Let me lead you in prayer, lead you in prayer. We're all praying, we're coming to God through Jesus together. Um, congregational prayer, the reason why we have congregational prayers that we say out loud all together is to reflect this reality of the priesthood of all believers, that we can all approach God through faith in Christ. We don't need to go to, through one person out the front. And because we believe in grace alone, 
the priest would lead the congregation in a general confession and follow that with a declaration of forgiveness on the basis of the gospel. So church worship was transformed, you see. What else was transformed? Family life was transformed. Luther, a Catholic priest, married Catherine von Bora, had children together, had a loving marriage. It lasted decades. Revolutionary. Education. Within a hundred years of the Reformation, two-thirds of Europe had become literate. Why? Because now the Bible was in their own language and scripture reading was encouraged. And so kids were learning to read. The Reformation changed education across Europe. The arts and industry were arenas to glorify God. You know, Luther cheekily said that the maid that milks the cow advances the kingdom of God, whereas the Pope in all his finery hinders it. Why? Because the, even something as basic as milking a cow, right, and doing that industry could be done to the glory of God because we know that the cow is provided by God and the milk and the udder of the cow is provided by God to care for his creation. Uh, she's advancing the kingdom of God, doing it in faith, giving thanks to God. Uh, whereas the Pope, in all his finery, he's drawing attention to himself, not to Jesus. He's hindering it. Bach, the composer, used to initial all his works SDG, Sola Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. Whether he was composing St. Matthew's Passion or the Brandenburg Concertos, whether his music was sacred or secular, it was all for the glory of God alone. What about someone who can't do anything? What about a quadriplegic? What's the point of their existence? Um, in my previous church, Trinity City, in the congregation I was looking after, every week there would come in a lady who was wheeled in an electric wheelchair. She couldn't move, couldn't speak, couldn't even focus. Total quadriplegic. Um, she'd had an accident, a very accomplished woman, some decades back, but for six years after her accident, uh, we've heard from her writings, somehow she was able to <laughs> communicate and write it down, um, no one thought anything was going on up here, and all she could do was breathe and think. What's the point of life of someone like that? Somehow she was able to write a book very slowly through communicating through her eyes to her carers. She called that book, There is a Light at the End of the Tunnel. I went to the book launch last year. Ellie was a Christian. She dedicated that book to the glory of God. Even someone like that can live for the glory of God. I have a friend who sang in last year's musical production of Les Mis here in Adelaide. He said before going on, he would stand and pray in the wings. And he said the night before, he looked up and his eyes locked with another bloke across the stage in those wings who was doing exactly the same thing. And they realised they were both praying and giving their performance over to the glory of God. You can do it. I cite these examples to show that there is no part of our life which cannot be lived to God's glory or given to Him. Everything we have comes from Him and we receive it through Him. But we must give it to Him. That's the purpose. 
um, your finest work, your greatest achievements, your sporting prowess, the finances God's, God's given you, and then the mundane things, washing up, dressing your children, caring for the sick, um, reading to your kids, tidying the house, doing the gardening, the way you drive your car on the road. We do it all for the glory of God. What's the point? What's the point in life? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever and to make every aspect of our life an exercise in magnifying Him for God's grace towards us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the clarity that your word gives us. And we know that when we became Christians and said Jesus is Lord, this would infiltrate every area of our life because he is Lord of the whole lot. But we know that in our sinfulness, we want to limit that lordship and hold back different areas. But now we realize how wrong that is. And that every area of our life, the public, the private, the big, the small, the things that we happily let go of and the things that we cherish, everything we have comes from you. And we receive it through you. And now we give it to you. To you be the glory. Not to us. Not to us, but to you. Amen.